Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira. And today I have a story that's stranger than fiction to me. Like, it seriously sounds like it was written for a Lifetime movie and did not really happen. Before I jump into it, I want to thank you guys so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. This is something that I love to do. I've always been really gripped by true crime, so I really enjoy having a community of like true crime enthusiasts as well to share these stories with, to honor the victims, and to discuss the crazies. Anyway, you can reach out to me on social media. That's Storytime Slayer on Facebook story underscore time underscore slayer on Instagram and then feel free to email me at storytimepods at gmail.com I seriously love for people to email me and talk to me about the about the episodes that I cover and just reach out so anyway feel free also if you're listening on Apple Podcasts please stop and leave a five star review honesty is always the best policy but I really hope you choose five stars all right let's get started Today, I'm going to be discussing the murder of school teacher Betty Gore. She was killed with excessive force and left in her laundry room. This happened early in the day, and this was in June of 1980 in the small town of Wiley, Texas. The year this crime took place, Wiley's population was 3,152, so this was definitely small town America in Texas. In this small town lived Patrick and Candy Montgomery. Patrick was an engineer for Texas Instruments, and Candy was now a homemaker. See, they'd met in the early 70s at Texas Instruments. Pat was beginning his career as an engineer, and Candy was the secretary. But when they moved to Wiley, Pat was making really good money, like in the 70000 a year range, which is not bad for 1977. Candy had grown up as an army brat, And because of that, she'd moved around a lot as a kid, and so she was very personable and made friends easily and got along well with people. So although Candy had a great life, she repeatedly was described as a bored housewife. Her and Patrick had two kids together. They had one boy and they had one girl, and they attended their local Methodist church. This is where Candy met Betty and Alan Gore. Trust me, you gonna just hold on, okay? Candy and Patrick moved out to the country of Wiley. So they live, when I say the country of Wiley, they live like out in the outskirts of town. They live in a small town. They live out on some land. They bought their home in 1977. It's said to be Candy's dream home. And after they bought the house and moved there, Candy wasted no time plugging herself into the local church. I definitely get the vibe that they were regulars at their local small hometown church. So something about small towns in the South, being plugged into your local church basically becomes like the center of people's lives. They attend Sunday and Wednesday services every week, you know, about one hour each service. And then many of them have like women's groups and activities that they do together, like book clubs or monthly outings or both. And then some members of these churches also become really good friends and they spend a lot of time with each other, like even going on family vacations and stuff. Small town churches are like they become their life, if that makes sense. This is where Alan and Betty Gore meet Patrick and Candy Montgomery. They're like all in their late 20s. I know for a fact that Candy was 30 
when all of this wrapped up, when Betty was murdered, she was 30. So Candy was like 28 when her and Betty met. And then Candy and Patrick have a daughter that's close in age with Betty and Alan's daughter. Betty was a school teacher and she was pregnant with her second child when Candy and her met. And I don't know exactly what Alan did, but he had to travel a lot for work. And Betty did not cope well with this at all. Like she hated for Alan to be gone even for one night. So they meet, they become friends. Candy and Patrick are welcomed warmly into the church and they fit right on in their community, right? So as time goes on, for whatever reason, Candy had been thinking about how exciting an affair would be, how it would like spice up her life completely. She'd been discussing this idea amongst friends and she said that she really wanted to have an affair with hot, steamy sex. Like this was her number one motivation for an affair. She wasn't looking for anything emotional. She was looking for just sexual excitement. After about nine months of knowing Betty and Alan, Candy was kind of starting to get the hots for Alan and wanted him to be like, she wanted him to be the guy that she had a hot sex crazed affair with. Um, She said the moment that she knew she wanted to have an affair with Alan was during a co-ed church softball game, which is so bizarre. Okay. Alan bumped into her and she thought he smelled good. She thought he smelled sexy and that he was probably good in bed. So she wanted to find out. I find that combination to be so funny. Like, oh man, he smelled good. He must be able to bang me hard. So, <laughs> so Alan is described to be a really great guy. Like he loved kids. He was active in his church, sociable, charming, and best of all, he was really funny. <laughs> I love funny people, panty dropper. So Candy decided that she was just going to go ahead. She was just going to ask Alan if he would be interested in having an affair. And she'd make it clear that she really wanted to. She was going to really push for this. One night after church choir practice, <laughs> see, I told y'all they go to church all the time. Here we go. They already go probably twice a week and to their choir practice. And they probably get to church like 30 minutes early before service so they can practice with the choir. It's it's a time thing, guys. It's, it's a commitment. So when choir practice was over, Candy told Alan that she wanted to speak with him and that it was very important. So they decided to meet after practice and Candy quickly told him in a nutshell that she had something on her mind and she didn't know if she wanted to act on it or not. And she kind of like tiptoed around what it was. And then she got straight to the point and just told Alan that she was super attracted to him and tried to not think about it anymore. She was tired of thinking about it. Alan responded by point blank. He could not cheat on his wife, period. Betty had just become pregnant with their second child and he did not think he was capable of like anything that bad. Alan was pretty surprised by Candy's confession, but he'd be lying if he didn't say he was also a bit flattered. It's speculated that when Betty and Alan went to have a second child, Betty wanted the pregnancy plan down to the exact week so that she could be sure that she gave birth to a midsummer baby. This required nightly clinical sex during her fertility season, and Alan really resented this idea. When researching for this story, I also got the impression that Betty became a little bit emotionally unstable or depressed, and this really kind of displeased Alan. I'm sure it was just wearing on him. Betty had a hard time dealing with Alan needing to go out of town for his job too, so like 
even though he said he could never cheat on his wife, I think changes in Betty kind of, I guess you would say, made it easier for Alan to cheat on her and change his mind and agree to have the affair with Candy. I'm not excusing Alan cheating or condoning it, but I would say he used the she drove me away excuse for why he decided to go ahead and have an affair with Candy after he told her he could never do that because he would never cheat on his wife. So it was on Candy's 29th birthday that Alan actually called her cell phone and asked if she would meet him at a mechanic repair shop in McKinney, Texas later that day. This is where they had their first conversation about having an affair. When Candy got there, Alan had a birthday card that read, For the last of the Red Hot Lovers. And inside he had some Red Hot Candies. It was a little memento. He remembered that she liked them and she thought it was sweet. So they went to a tea house together and they sat and they talked for like an hour. And they just talked about their spouses and their children and their families and things like that. They didn't even really discuss sex or an affair. This conversation went on a couple weeks without anything really happening between them. Alan would call Candy for like meticulous planning such as, well, what if blank happened? Or what if somebody caught us and we had an affair, etc. So Candy began to grow like really impatient by this. Um, Alan needed to make a decision or move on. At the end of November, she invited Alan to lunch at her house. They actually ate a homemade lasagna. Above the fireplace was a piece of paper that was divided into two sections. One section for reasons why they should have an affair, and one section for reasons why they shouldn't. Alan was really unsure about having an affair. The con conversation mostly revolved around like getting caught or falling in love, and then the pro section focused on the exciting things about a secret affair. You know, like the sex and the excitement and the secrecy. Now, she totally left the ball in Alan's court. She was 100% on board. It was her idea. She'd approached him about it and he needed to kind of pick what he was going to do. So after a lot of planning and rules and regulations in place, Alan decided he wanted to go through with it. And they ultimately began their affair December 12th, 1978. According to the Texas Monthly, these were the rules that they set in place. If either one of them wanted to end the affair for whatever reason, it would end, no matter what. Um, if they became too emotionally involved, it would end. If they started taking risks that would get them caught, it would end. All expenses like the food, motel, gas, whatever was going to be split equally. They only met on weekdays while their significant others were at work. Candy was in charge of lunch every day so that they could have more time together. And they decided the rule was they would take all of Alan's two-hour lunch. Candy was in charge of getting a motel room. And they would meet on Tuesday or Thursday, but only once every two weeks. Candy was free on days when her little boy attended the play day school at Allen Methodist Church. But that was only on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 to 2. And she actually wanted the other three out of four days for um, her errands and church and stuff. So that's was their schedule. All this was their rules. And this is how they were going to do this affair. For the first four months, they met every other week very cautiously at the Como Motel. And they carried on with their regular lives outside of the affair. Candy held playdates with Betty still. 
Alan's wife. Oh my God. And she even threw his wife a baby shower. Cause remember Betty was pregnant with her and Alan's second child when this affair sparked. What a rude thing to do. Like that's just a rude thing to throw the woman who she's having an affair with her husband, a baby shower. What a bitch. So as the affair continued, the meetings became more and more infrequent. Like for one, Candy started this affair so that she could have super hot sex. And Alan just didn't quite deliver. He was like a mediocre lover. He wanted to talk and have more of an emotional connection than Candy said that she did. Despite the fact that that isn't how it sounded to me. It sounded like she wanted super hot sex and he didn't deliver, but she was still kind of emotionally attached to him. That's why she proceeded, I think. And for example, like Alan didn't even have much experience French kissing. All right. So he was also a really gentle lover and he didn't last long, but he was learning and Alan loved to have sex with Candy. I mean, I guess she really knew how to rock the mic. I don't know. Betty knew something was off with her husband though. She just could not put her finger on it. Like for one, she noticed a lack of sexual appetite and attraction to her, which that made her super depressed. Like Betty would cry. Um, she began taking painkillers for aches and pains that she had, which everyone kind of believed was stress induced. Like she was carrying a lot of stress in her shoulders and neck. They had to go to a marriage counselor at their church. I mean, Alan's affair took a big toll on Betty, even though she didn't know what was different. She knew things were different. So after Betty gave birth to their second child, Alan became super, super guilt-ridden. All right, so he felt really guilty for the fact that Betty was at home tending to two small children alone while he was like off having this fun, sexy two-hour rendezvous with Candy. And he also felt guilty because when Betty was able to have sex after the baby, he had to turn her down because he'd already had sex with Candy that day and he just didn't have the stamina left. This hurt Betty's feelings so bad. Like she cried, she felt unattractive and unwanted. I mean, she just birthed their second child. So she began going through something serious following having the baby in this affair. She was having, like I said, extreme aches in her neck and shoulders, really high blood pressure, and some symptoms of postpartum depression. She ended up having to go to the doctor to get some prescriptions for the pain. And Alan began thinking of how he could help Betty, and he ended up changing jobs to a smaller company so that he wouldn't have to travel as much. Betty hated when he had to leave town and being home alone. And he also decided that it was probably time to end the affair. Candy and Alan begin going back and forth on ending the affair. <laughs> it's so weird. I've never met or heard of someone having to have so many lengthy discussions about starting and stopping an affair. Um, although the affair wasn't quite what Candy hoped for sexually, um, she had expected Alan to get better. He did show great promise, but he never really improved. And so it kind of lost him the excitement and interest for Candy. Now, remember, she started to have hot sex, but Alan and Candy became more best friends than like sexy lovers. They would leave things on each other's cars and have afternoon phone calls. Um, sometimes they didn't even have sex when they met up because they just wanted to talk. Waking up early to prep the lunches that Candy was in charge of and have desserts ready that she was like going to leave on his car for fun became more of a hassle and not super exciting anymore. So despite these feelings, she really didn't want to end the affair with Alan. But when Alan, you know, mentioned wanting to end it out of guilt, she did listen. And the accounts say that Candy became emotionally attached 
Like I said, it's never denied that she was disappointed in the sex and tired of making the lunches and desserts, but she would miss the afternoon calls and emotional connection they had. But after seeing the guilt weighing on Alan, Candy finally agreed to call it quits for Alan because she knew that he would never be able to call it quits himself. He would just take the guilt from both ends forever. Even though they had successfully ended their affair without anybody finding out or catching them, I think Betty was just like too suspicious of Alan having an affair and she just couldn't quite figure it out before it was over though. Crazy is Candy's husband Patrick had no idea. I guess he was just like extremely trusting of Candy so he had no inkling. All in all this affair lasted less than six months I think. Both couples attended a marriage weekend retreat seminar thing after their affair ended. Now, they didn't go together or on the same weekend. It did wonders for Betty and Alan. Like, they had renewed sparks. It kind of renewed the passion in their relationship. They would planned a second honeymoon that they were going to go on. No kids to Europe. But it didn't really do the same for Candy and Pat. Candy and Alan did end the affair and life went on. But life did not go on for Betty. Friday, June 13th, 1980. So yes, this was a Friday the 13th. Alan and Betty's daughter had stayed the night at Candy and Pat's house because, as I mentioned before, Betty and Candy's daughters were friends. Candy needed to go to Betty's to grab Betty's daughter's swimsuit because their girls took swim lessons together. And while Candy was there at Betty's, she got an unexpected accusation from Betty about sleeping with Alan. Now, this was several months after the affair had ended, and um, Betty had already been a little off that morning because, for one, Alan had left to go out of town that morning, and Betty fucking hated that. Also, Betty had severe PMS every month, and um, I guess she was supposed to have started her period around then, and she was two weeks late, so then she was afraid that she was pregnant, and maybe that's why she was feeling kind of hysterical. But either way, she was either late to start or experiencing extreme PMS that was kind of causing her to not, not, she just wasn't really herself. So this is probably why the confrontation even happened on this day in particular. Like Alan's gone, Betty's in a bitchy mood, and here comes Candy, and she, she's pretty sure Candy's been sleeping with her man. According to Candy, Betty was like unhinged after she asked Candy about the affair with Alan. Betty like popped out of the room for a minute and casually like took out a three foot axe and was staring at Candy in which she then attempted to attack Candy with it telling her to stay away from Alan. This is all according to Candy. She was able to gash Candy's toe but that was it and Candy gained control of the axe when Betty lost balance and when this happened Candy who was probably pissed off. I mean, this is her ex-lover's wife, the woman that caused her affair to end. And Candy got control of the weapon and she reared up that axe and took it to the back of Betty's head. Oh my God. And she admits this. This is Candy's account. So this caused serious injury, but it actually did not render Betty unconscious or even kill her. The woman still fought over the axe. By the way, this is not a hatchet. This is a three-foot axe, y'all. Those are heavy. I mean, they're at least a couple pounds. So for several minutes, they struggled until Candy finally got control of the axe and she used the last little bit of strength she had. I love it. It's like described that way over and over. The last bit of strength she had. It was not the last bit of strength she had because she chopped Betty 41 times with this axe. 41. 
that's a lot of little bit of strength left over. So after she attacked Betty, Candy just panicked. She panicked and she just left. She like straight up left. By the way, though, Alan and Betty's baby was upstairs in the crib. So Candy's panicked. Her clothes are wet. Her toe is throbbing and bleeding. By the way, she was wearing flip-flop sandals. She goes home, showers, quickly changes. She put her blouse in like the sink and some cold water and her jeans in the washer slaps a band-aid on her toe changes her jeans and I'm not kidding you she actually puts the shirt that she was wearing that she had to soak in cold water that she killed Betty in she put that shirt after soaking it in the dryer and she put it back on and walked out the door in it she said it she was lucky that it was burgundy (laughs) okay and then she traded out the sandals that got some blood from her toe on them for tennis shoes By the way, during all of this, her and Betty's daughters were at a church activity together, like a little church camp daily thing, and Candy needed an alibi. So when she got to the church to pick up her and Betty's daughters, she told people that she had gone to Betty's. They spoke a moment, and then she saw on her watch that she had plenty of time to go to Target in Plano. However, once she reached the Target parking lot, she just miraculously noticed that her watch battery had actually died. And so she didn't even get to go into Target. She just drove to Target. This is her alibi. This is what she was doing. Candy made sure that she walked upright and didn't limp, even though she really wanted to. However, and this is so dumb. This is the part where you're like, what a dumbass. She had a cut on her hairline that kept bleeding down her forehead. You know, cuts on your head bleed superficially and are a lot harder to clot than cuts or gashes elsewhere. But, I mean, how good is a bleeding forehead when you're securing an alibi? Candy also didn't know that she was known for wearing sandals in, like, the summertime. So the women at church found the fact that she was wearing tennis shoes like a really strange choice of shoe for Candy. So Candy, literally, after killing Betty, she just went about her day like it was any other day. She picked up her daughter and Betty's daughter. And um, in the meantime, Alan kept calling Betty. And the phone would just keep ringing and ringing and ringing. And this really worried Alan because Betty, like, anticipated Alan's call. She hated when he was gone. And he had promised that he'd call from the DFW airport, which always brought temporary relief to Betty she didn't answer it was in the afternoon time and so he just like gave up and thought okay maybe she's with her friend Bethany I'll try her again later so he gets to the hotel later and he tries Betty like he lets the home phone ring 15 times calls an operator has them connect them oh wow an operator remember those I don't I'm like I'm too young to remember an operator but I know what they are No one answers, though, and he's like, what the hell? Betty would never make plans in the evening and not tell him, so he decided that it was time to call around and see if anyone had spoken to Betty. First, he called his neighbor Richard, and (laughs) I love the neighbor Richard because I'm the neighbor Richard. Richard seemed, like, pretty inconvenienced, but he said that he went to the door, he knocked, nobody answered, he didn't hear anything, and he told um, Alan that he just thinks Betty's gone and everything's fine. Next, Alan actually called Candy, And he asks her if she's seen Betty and Candy actually tells him, oh yeah, I saw Betty this morning and Betty seemed fine, but she was in a hurry for me to leave. Yeah, Candy, uh, Betty wanted you to leave in a motherfucking body bag. So Alan gets off the phone with Candy. He calls back his neighbor, Richard. And this time he asks him to check the garage to see if Betty's car's there. Of course, Richard's like, ah, 
But he says yes, and he goes over there, and he sees that the garage light was on, the garage door was open, um, and both Betty and Alan's cars were there. Remember, Alan left his car home because he was flying. After hearing that, Alan decided, okay, I'm going to call around to the local hospitals or police. Maybe the baby's sick, and, you know, she had to get a ride. I don't know, an ambulance. So after the hospital and police, knowing nothing of Betty and the baby, um, frantically called Richard a third time. Now, Richard was annoyed. Like, this is how he's repeatedly described. But Alan tells him that he's super worried and he needs Richard to, like, really check. Like, really, really check. Even try to go inside and see if she left a note or something. Richard approaches the house from the garage, but the garage door was locked. And um, at this point, he was kind of, like, spooked. Cars were home. Garage was open. Lights were on. Um, Alan told him to find a way in. Of course, he didn't. He didn't. He was going to go look for some keys. I guess he thought that maybe he had their key to their door in like this pile of keys he had. So Richard leaves, doesn't try any other doors or anything, by the way. So in the meantime, Alan had given Richard his number to the hotel and he thought to call his friend Jerry, who he worked with. It sounds like Jerry lived really close to Alan because he didn't even have to like drive there. He got out in a jumper that's something that I read. I don't know what kind of grown man is like getting hurry up and putting on his jumper, but he hurried up and put on his jumper and slippers and walked to Alan's with a flashlight. Now he told Alan that everything looked okay aside from what they already knew about the garage and lights. And Jerry was like, yeah, I think everything's fine. And I think she's probably just gone with friends. Like, okay, don't call Jerry if something's happening. So, Long story short, Jerry went home and told his wife, though, and she was really freaked out. So she sends Jerry back over. He meets the neighbor, Richard, the reluctant one. And Richard's, like, out front going through a big tray of keys to find the one to Alan and Betty's house. Um, He eventually grabs a key that he thinks is it, and he goes to put it in the front door. And the front door wasn't even locked this whole time, okay? So they get inside and they search the house and the first thing they find is baby Bethany in her crib and she's a hot mess. So Candy had gone by there at like nine in the morning and this was after 11 at night. She was covered in her own poop. She was clearly exhausted. Her face was splotchy red. Her hair was dirty. I mean, she'd been there for a long time. That's like 14 hours. And then plus, think about if she'd maybe laid down for a nap two hours before that. I mean, we're talking 16 hours. They continue searching the home. And then one of the men decided he like smelt something kind of pungent in the kitchen area. And he followed the smell, which took him to the laundry room which is where this altercation between Candy and Betty took place. Now, he didn't actually see the body. He saw a large pool of blood and decided it was time to just shut the door. And just then, the home phone began ringing, and it was Alan. The man answered the phone and told Alan that the baby was okay, but that Betty was not, um, and that he needed to, you know, come. Alan's next call was to Candy. It was 11 p.m. and Pat was super annoyed because they were like about to have sex and then Alan comes calling and Alan told Candy that something happened to Betty and that Betty had maybe been shot dead and he needed them to keep Alyssa their daughter. Now she was already having a sleepover with Candy's daughter to begin with and he asked her not to tell their daughter that Betty was dead and Candy said yes like Candy I don't know. She sounds like the world's worst person ever. Like she threw Betty a baby shower while she was sleeping with her husband. Um, she killed Betty and she's just not going to tell anyone. She's And she's also going to keep watching Betty's daughter. Like that's pretty sick. 
So anyway, Candy wakes up early the next morning and like just goes about her regular housewife duties. Then everybody starts calling Candy because remember, they're like super plugged into this local church and it's a small town. And they're like, oh, did you hear about Betty? And everyone had first heard that Betty was shot. And Candy's so dumb because she was relieved thinking, oh, yeah, maybe they'll think that it was a suicide. But obviously the rumor mill informed Candy that they found out it was in fact an axe that killed Betty. And Candy got really tense, uh, but not as tense as when she found out that the criminal left a shoe print. Candy immediately grabbed those flip-flop sandals and some garden shears and like destroyed the bottom of her shoe sole and then threw the shoe, well, what was left of the shoe, away. Okay. Now, after police heard that Candy was the last person to see Betty alive, it didn't take them long to suspect her. Like, her version of what she did that day never swayed, and they had no real motive, so they had to just wait. They had to wait it out. Eventually, Alan admitted that him and Candy actually ended their affair seven months before Betty was chopped up, and this gave Candy a motive to the police, and they were able to arrest her. Candy had denied all charges and she was heavily backed and supported by her church and her lawyer was a member of her church. So he got her out on bail and took her to a psychiatrist named Fred Faison after she was released. They did some tests and they spoke for hours, but they ultimately decided to try hypnotherapy to get to the root of why Candy ultimately killed Betty in such an angry personal manner. I'm just going to let you guys know I hate when they do hypnotherapy, but whatever so she goes into a hypnosis candy does and they begin to ask her if she ever recalled a time she was as mad as she'd been during her attack on betty candy did recall a time she recalled a time when she hurt herself i guess she'd like broken a jar and um i don't know how she injured herself but her mom had to take her to the hospital and candy was in like extreme pain and her mom shushed her in the emergency room so that she wouldn't like disturb the other people she was probably a kid like wailing you know i've had that before and you're like shh so bear with me they take this experience of candy being shushed in the emergency room and they decide with this information they will be able to have candy plea self-defense here's why so supposedly everything that occurred between candy and Betty that morning. Betty, for one, was not dressed. She was clearly planning to spend the day at home doing like housework and chores. And Candy just stopped by to get the swimsuit for swim lessons. So Betty and Candy participated in small talk about just like the kids and swim lessons and how they give each other's daughters mints like or how they give their daughter mints for like a reward if they actually put their head underwater you know, during swimming. And so in the middle of this like small talk, Betty just outright asked Candy if she'd been having an affair with Alan. And Candy said no. And Betty was like, but you did, didn't you? As in like past tense. And Candy confirmed, but she'd mentioned that it had been like a long time over with. And with that, Betty just said like, wait. And then she appeared in the doorway calmly with an ax. Candy was like, oh shit. And she was like, oh, hey, Betty, I'll be sure just to drop Alyssa off after Bible study today, like after the kids Bible camp that day. And Betty said, no, no, I don't want to see you, Candy, and told her just to grab the swimsuit from the washer while she grabbed Alyssa a towel. And Candy's thought process was like, "Okay, I'm just going to play calm and nice and get out of this house. 
And before she left, she said that Betty looked really sad. And so Candy touched her arm and apologized. First of all, I would have been like, why the hell do you have a axe? All right. And no one looks sad with an axe. Like it's impossible to hold an axe and look sad. So Betty then proceeded to freak out and yell at Candy that she couldn't have Alan. I guess she didn't want to be told she looked sad. I don't know. So this is where the axe struggle began that led to Candy's toe being hit in the first place. And then while they struggled, Candy said that she was begging Betty to stop and to just like let her go. And this is the repetitive conversation that took place between them. Like basically during their struggle over the axe, Candy was begging Betty to just stop and let her go, stop and let her go. Even after Betty cut her toe and after Cindy hit Betty in the head with the axe, they were still arguing. Then Candy just like totally lost her shit and struck Betty 41 times in the axe. And she did this because she said Betty shushed her. And subconsciously, this took her back to the emergency room with her mom where she was shushed. And she was just tired of being repressed. And it just broke something in her. And that's why she went crazy on Betty with the axe. That's a damn stretch. So I do want to mention, it is reported that 40 of the 41 chops occurred while Betty was still alive and struggling. Candy's testimony took place on a Friday. Both the defense and the prosecution rested that following Wednesday. And the day that they rested, the jury came back with a verdict only four and a half hours after deliberating. The jury was composed of nine women and three men and... Usually same-day verdicts are really bad for the defense, but Candy was actually charged not guilty by reason of self-defense. Wow. She now goes by Candace Wheeler, and she lives in Georgia. Her and Patrick are divorced now, but they didn't get divorced over this. In fact, he stood by Candy's side during the trial and the investigation. Candy and her daughter are both now mental health therapists in Georgia. What a change of pace. Okay, oh wow. But Patrick did eventually divorce her. Um, and Alan went on to remarry shortly after Betty died. But he ended up losing custody of him and Betty's two daughters. They were sent to live with Betty's family. And the family like completely cut ties with Alan until a couple years ago. And they're now like been repairing the relationship. I would be hella pissed at Alan if I was Betty's family. Honestly, guys, I cannot believe that Candy was not found guilty of something. Like, first of all, she killed this woman, left her baby in the crib, knowing that there was no other caregiver because Alan was out of town, which is just like really callous to me. I can't believe she went ahead and took care of Betty and Alan's daughter. She should have called the police. And I have a really hard time excusing the brute force was because her mom shushed her in a damn waiting room. I mean, give me a break. This is the craziest situation to me. So some afterthoughts, things that I've heard about this case was that Alan did back up the fact that he didn't think Candy did this with like the intention of killing Betty. He does believe that it was in self-defense because Betty could be really emotionally up and down. And so he did attest to the fact that Betty did have severe PMS and she was going through something emotionally. I'm sure this has part of it to do with why Alan was kind of exiled out of Betty's family because if Betty had a problem, he really didn't seem to be tending to it. He was too busy with his mistress. And then he immediately like gets remarried to somebody else. That's pretty suspicious. 
all in all, I do think Candy should have gotten in trouble for something. She's way guilty of something, if you ask me. Anyway, guys, remember, this happened between two couples at church. So watch your back. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Thank you.